Welcome to week two of our seven-week series about the violence in the Bible and our struggle with vengeance. We are exploring a new way of looking at the scriptures in light of God's revelation of Himself in Jesus Christ. We're finding inspiration for how we live in our generation non-violently as the Gallery Church today. This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me, who's far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. John the Baptist The Old Testament is the inspired telling of the story of Israel coming to know their God. It's a process. God doesn't evolve, but Israel's understanding of God Obviously thus, Brian Zand. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. The Prophet Isaiah This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him, our Father in heaven. All right, Gallery Church, we are on part two of a, of a sermon that I started last week, a teaching that we started last week entitled Sinners in the Arms of a Loving God. Today is part two of that. Last week, we asked the question, is this true? Is the sermon of Jonathan Edwards that God is angry with us, that he's holding us over a fire, so to speak, and just can't wait to drop us in. So today, um, if you're following along in the notes, you'll notice that part two is labeled Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And if you recall, the three of those individuals were together at one point. It's referred to in the gospel account as the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's one of the most mysterious stories um, uh, I find in the Gospels. Uh, and it took place uh, in what's called Mount Tabor. It occurred about a week after Peter had had his big, great confession. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is what he said to Jesus. And Jesus's response to Peter was just as profound and powerful. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so that happened one week prior to the moment that we call the transfiguration at the top of Mount Tabor. And so now we find that Jesus has walked Peter, James, and John up this mountain to the top, just the three of them. And there before these three special disciples, I'll just put them that way for right now. He was transfigured in front of them. His clothes, as the Gospel of Mark writes in chapter 9, were dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. I love the way that that's translated. What, what is really strange to me is not just the beauty of Christ, but is the fact that specifically Moses and Elijah show up to have a conversation with Jesus. They're just standing there in front of Peter, James, and John having a conversation. So imagine the three, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, 
probably a little higher up on the mountain. And then Peter, James, and John, I'm not imagining they're very far away. Um, a lot of times people could presume that it was like yards, hundreds of yards away where Peter, James, and John could barely see them. But with the type of interaction that we see in this passage, I believe that they're in very close proximity to one another. I think it's really interesting that Peter, James, and John are considered the representatives of the church and they witness what has happened with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. When you think about Peter, James, and John and the way in the book of Acts that their ministry took root and how they really were foundational figures in the church moving forward, I believe this moment of transfiguration was constantly on their mind. And so if you have Peter, James, and John representing the church that you and I are now a part of, like the church, the body of Christ, Moses and Elijah seem to be witnesses to the Old Testament now interacting with Jesus. Moses obviously being the law and Elijah being the prophets. And the law and the prophets were trying to produce in the nation of Israel and arguably, according to many of the Old Testament texts, towards Gentiles as well, a holy nation of people, a society that knew how to treat one another and how to act in justice. So you have Moses and Elijah representing these greater number of writers that we're trying to get a group of people to function in a way that they were loving one another and loving God the way that they should. Okay, so before I finish this Mount of Transfiguration, I want to kind of play a little game with you as best I can. It's kind of weird with me being in this room by myself, and now you're going to be watching this uh, most likely on Sunday or one day early in the week. And it may feel... I don't know, cheesy, odd. I mean, I might get a power eye roll out of my kids when I'm sitting here watching the service with them. But I believe that I, I believe that this will be helpful for you and I to begin to continue to expose really what we've been taught and what we think and what we believe. So this little game is sort of like a question and response. Like you, I'll say, it's like a word association, but just with a question where I'll say the question and then you immediately have to respond with your gut reaction. So let me, let me, and I got this, the set of questions from Brian Zod in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which I think was a fascinating book. But here's, here is uh, the questions that he asked in this little call and response. First question, did God tell Abraham to kill his son? You say yes. Most of you probably responded yes, maybe a little bit. Um, hesitant. Maybe some of you were really quick at responding. Some of you may have said, yeah, but it was a test of his faith. He really didn't want him to kill his son. All right. So whatever you process that question, that's fine. That's really what I was hoping for. And the second question, did God command Joshua, King Saul, and the Israelites to kill children in the past as part of their ethnic cleansing of Canaan? Many of you said yes, like a little bit hesitant, a little stuttering. It's almost like that question, have you ever been in a room that was very familiar to you, but the power had gone out and your eyes hadn't adjusted and you couldn't see, but you knew what was in the room. And so you were trying to navigate to the other side of the room to get the flashlight or to get the candle that you knew where the lighter was. And 
you're kind of feeling and bumping into things, but you don't harm yourself because you're familiar enough. You're not running into anything. I believe that there's a little bit of that in this question where we say yes, but we don't want to say yes too strongly. So the third question, a little bit simpler, a little bit easier. Does God change? Most of you probably responded if with a confident no. Others of you may be still a little hesitant, but a cornerstone of our Christian theology, the ways that we think and shape our words about God, is that God is unchanging. All right, so the fourth question. Since we've agreed that God doesn't change, and but we have acknowledged that in times past, God has sanctioned the killing of children as part of the genocidal program of conquest. Is it then possible that God would require you to kill children. All right. I know you're probably saying, I don't like this game. I don't like these questions. So I get it. I understand. Um, But I want you to bear with me a little bit longer. I'm almost done. The last question. If God told you to kill children, would you do so? It is probably an adamant no way. Some of you are probably reaching to turn me off right now on whatever platform you're watching. I want you to hang with me because I think these questions are really important, especially in light of everything that we've seen in our country since January the 6th, since George Floyd, since so many others that have been killed by other individuals. There's so much happening. And I want you to hear me because if you adamantly say, no way, I would never do that if God asked me, I believe that there's something a little bit behind that then for you and I. Because if you and I say, there's no way I would kill a child, are you and I then claiming that if God does, that you and I have a higher level of morality than the creator and sustainer of the universe, that you and I in some ways are better at caring for other people and loving other people than God himself So we've agreed that God doesn't change. So there's obviously something going on here. So I believe there's four possibilities of things that we've been taught, things that have been implied in the ways that we address the Bible or that we interact or the ways that we've seen this type of thinking become a part of us. And so here are the four possibilities that we can do with this idea of the violence and the killing in the Bible. Number one, we can question the morality of God. And a lot of people do this. Perhaps he is a monster at times. And there are a lot of people that believe this. And the second thing is, is we can question the unchanging nature of God. Maybe he does change is what some people might believe. And I've had conversations with people that actually do believe that God has changed. Or the third thing is we can question how we read the scriptures. And could it be that we need to learn to read the Bible in a different way? Or the fourth, which is what a lot of people have done. And I think it's part of the reason why we're in the situation that we are in right now, especially in our country. We can simply ignore the whole issue of violence in the Bible as if to pretend there is no problem. Now, I would say that people could accuse me of that because in the last 13 years here in Baltimore, um, I haven't spoken on evil and violence since that first year in 2008 when we did a series about evil and injustice. And so it has been a long time since I've done a talk about violence, um, even though we've talked through the Gospels and there's been moments of it being implied. 
So out of these four options, I really think only three are really valid because that fourth one is really not an option. Ignoring something is never a good choice. So we have the three options. We are left with either questioning God's morality, questioning his unchanging nature, or questioning how we read the Bible. So for me, the first two are not reasonable. I do not think that we have the ability to question God's morality, and I don't think God is changing. So I have shaped this entire first series, uh, or this entire series, um, with the help of Pastor Bill and Aida, um, uh, to prove the point that I think option three is our only option. I can't make myself believe that God is a monster or that God changes. So my first point for us today, picking off of where we left off last week, is this true? And me answering it emphatically, God is love. This is not true. Here's my first point. It should be on the slide for you. I can accept that our understanding of God is in the process of growth and change and mutation. This is what I think we need to understand. My understanding is in the process of growth, change, and mutation. So a more simpler way of me saying this is something is changing, but it is not God. And I would almost love for it to feel like a little bit more like that coming at us. Something has changed, but it is definitely not God. So let me give you an illustration of how I think even cre- the creation has shared this with us. We call it the sunrise. Is the sun moving? No, the blue-green ball that we call Earth that we live on is actually the object moving. The sun is fixed. But for centuries, if not millennia, people thought that the sun was what was moving because of the way it goes through our sky. But the revelation is, is that the sun is still and we are moving. And the revelation for you and I is that it might appear that God is changing. It might appear that God is moving, but that is not possible. Something else must be going on. And that's what this series is about. Something else must be going on if you and I think that God is angry and approves of genocide and killing. So we have, in my opinion, only the third option. We have no choice but to revisit how we understand the scriptures and most importantly, the Old Testament. And I believe even how Jesus used the Old Testament could be a way for us to figure out how we find truth. So here's the next thing. It starts with you and I. It starts with us asserting the fact that it is Jesus who is the true word of God. I know we've heard a lot of things said from pulpits and in writing and the phrase that rolls off of our lips. And when people in the United States hear somebody say the word of God, the majority of people most likely think of the Bible. But the true word of God is Jesus It isn't something new. This isn't something profound that I have recently discovered. It's not something that I feel like is a modern day breakthrough. There have been theologians and pastors ever since Jesus left, Peter, James, and John included, that have been telling people that Jesus is the word of God, the incarnate of God. Christian theology, this understanding, like there is, there are confessions that the church have been making about Jesus, that he is the logos, the divine logic that of God that has been made flesh, like he became flesh and dwelt among us. That was the theme of the gospel of John. 
which we spent over an entire year working through. John insisted that Jesus was the incarnation of God. John insisted that Jesus shows us what God looks like. Jesus, not the scriptures, is the perfect revelation of God. And you and I have to get that into our thinking or else we will be discouraged or in error if we elevate Jesus to a different place. Let me let me compare this to some unique relation, a unique relationship in the Bible. The relationship is between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. In John chapter one, verses six through nine, and then I'm going to jump to verse 15. It says this. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now jump to verse 15. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds. This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. This is John the Baptist's words. John the Baptist was admitting that he was sent by God, but John was not God. John bore witness to the real word, the true word, but John was not the word. John was inspired by God to do the ministry that he was doing, but John was not God incarnate. And I believe understanding the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus will help you and I understand the relationship between the Bible and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The point of it is this, is the Bible is sent by God and inspired by God, but the Bible is not God. It is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, Holy Bible. John the Baptist and the Bible play similar roles in the revelation of the eternal truth about Jesus Christ. So let me just take those verses in John chapter one and change them up just a little bit so that maybe you can begin to hear and maybe see a little bit more. So this is how it would then read if it was comparing the Bible and Jesus Christ. There was a book sent from God whose name was the scripture. It came to witness to the light so that all might believe through it. And I, and I know that there are theologians and even some of you that this might be making, you might, it might make you feel a little uncomfortable right now. And I don't believe that this is lowering our view of scripture, but this is increasing our view of Jesus Christ. Because if there is something that can show us the true character of God, it is Jesus Christ. So then what do we then do with the Old Testament in particular? I believe um, that Brian Zahn said was, is really fantastic and is a quote on the screen for you. The Old Testament is the inspired telling of the story of Israel coming to know their God. It's a process. God doesn't evolve, but Israel's understanding of God obviously does. I love that. It seems obvious that we... It, to me, it seems obvious that we should accept that Israel was in the process of receiving the full revelation of Yahweh, but there were some unavoidable assumptions that the nation of Israel made. So many moments where 
they weren't seeking the Lord or they, they, they heard God say something, but yet they made some assumptions and added to what God said. And if we're not careful, we will find that, that we are going to do the same thing. They made some assumptions about Yahweh, their God, based upon what other gods and other nations were doing. And through this series, we will talk about that. These assumptions, I believe, are inevitable for Israel, were inevitable for Israel. And I believe they're inevitable for us, but it doesn't change the fact that it is wrong. When you and I think that God is angry and God desires to kill, that God desires to steal something from somebody by taking what is theirs, we need to be careful because I think we might be being led astray because even Jesus himself said that there's another one in this world that has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but that is not the characteristic of our Father in heaven. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, and you compare it to the conquest of Joshua, which is where we're headed, you and I will find that something obviously was different between the Torah and the Sermon on the Mount. So here, this is key. What has changed is not God, but the degree to which humanity has attained an understanding of the true nature of God. So let me begin with this. The Bible, specifically the Old Testament, is not the perfect revelation of God, but Jesus is. The Bible does, and specifically in the Old Testament, infallibly and inerrantly is pointing us to Jesus Christ, just like John the Baptist did. But once we realize that Jesus is the perfect image of the living God, we are forever prohibited from using the Old Testament to justify our violence. James Wilson wrote a moving book called The Earth Shall Weep, A History of Native America. And in that book, he wrote about the um, 1637 English colonial leadership in Connecticut, where they launched an aggressive campaign against the Poquet tribe for the sole purpose of acquiring their cultivated land. So this co colony assembled a war party of 90 settlers and established them under the command of a man named John Mason. Some of the colonists expressed some moral issues, some moral qualms about launching an unprovoked attack to the chaplain of this now new military force. And his name was Reverend John Stone. So after John Stone spent the evening in prayer, he said this, I am... I, I am fully satisfied with Mason's proposal. So at dawn on May 26, 1637, an armed colonist group of, of warriors attacked, and I quote, the main Poquet village at Mystic Lake on the central Connecticut River, killing an estimated four to 700 Indians. Most of the dead were women, and children. And Captain Mason was recorded as saying this, describing the slaughter. These are his words. They're on the screen. Thus was God seen in the mount, crushing his proud enemies and enemies of his people, burning them up in the fire of his wrath and dunging the ground with their flesh. 
It was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. James Wilson continues to write this. There also seemed to have been some colonists with misgivings about what had happened. And Captain Underhill was clearly replying to criticism when he wrote, and, end quote, It may be demanded, why should you be so furious? Should not Christians have more mercy and compassion? I would refer you to David's war. When a people is grown to such a height of blood and sin against God and man, sometimes the scripture declareth women and children must perish with their parents. We had sufficient light from the word of God for our proceedings. Now, obviously, Captain Underhill is referring to the Bible when he says the word of God and not to Jesus Christ. Genocide justified in the name of Jesus Christ, our God. My point is, if we leave the door open to justify the Canaanite genocide, we should not be surprised if modern crusaders, so to speak, try to push their way through the same door and incite the Bible in their defense like they did on January 6th and like people have been doing with the African-American community in our nation for generations and what we've done to other people of color and, and immigrants to our country. If we're not careful, we will use the Old Testament to kill, steal, and destroy. We do need to acknowledge that in the Bronze Era, which is this time of Torah, Israel made certain assumptions about the nature of God. And those assumptions um, should now be totally abandoned in light of Jesus Christ. So it is clear, Jesus Christ is, or Jesus Christ has closed the door on genocide and he has closed the door on all violence. And so that's all I'm going to say about that for right now, because Esther Aida is going to be sharing with us next week more about the conquest in Canaan of Joshua, which I think is going to be really important. So my case is about Jesus, and I want to continue to make that case to you now. Jesus demonstrates, in my opinion, which is going back to number three from our list earlier, that we must learn to read the scriptures differently. Jesus demonstrates a new and a creative way of reading and preaching the Hebrew prophets in law. So let me make my case for that. In Isaiah chapter 61, he is anticipating the spirit anointed king who was bringing justice by restoration of the ancient jubilee year in which the debts were canceled, slaves emancipated, and property inheritance restored. So Isaiah is talking about this in light of the spirit-anointed king coming to establish jubilee, this canceling of debts, slaves emancipated, and property inheritance restored to everyone. And so, verse 1, chapter 61, on the screen for you, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is another way of saying Jubilee, and the day of vengeance of our God? The Hebrew people were longing for peace. They were longing for justice. They were longing for restoration. But it was accompanied with a strong desire for revenge and retaliation. Even here, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. This long oppressed people, much much of their oppression was self-inflicted, the choices they were making. But this long oppressed people wanted their God to bring a day of vengeance on their enemy. They didn't want to just be set free. They didn't want debts to just be canceled. They didn't want to just get their land back. They wanted vengeance on their enemies. But retaliatory vengeance is not the only way that you and I can see the Old Testament and the Old Testament's view of the oppressive nations that were oppressing Israel. We refer to them as Gentiles in the New Testament, Jew and Gentile. So anybody other than a Jew was a Gentile. And Gentiles were all throughout the Old Testament. The story of Israel bumping up against different Gentile nations, different named nations. But there are two particular stories that I think undermine the vengeful thinking that Isaiah just spoke in Isaiah 61 too. These subtexts kind of subvert this retaliatory heart of God towards Israel's enemy. One of those such stories is found in 1 Kings chapter 17. The story is about the widow Zephyrath and she's introduced. And during during her life, God had used a prophet Elijah um, to cause a famine for three years across the globe. And so during the famine, God sent Elijah to Sidon, which is a Gentile nation, where this Gentile woman is given a miraculous jar of flour and oil that never goes empty. And she never runs out and her and her family survive. This Gentile widow survives the famine through a a miracle given by a Jewish prophet to a Gentile woman. This isn't just, I think, a nice story about God's supernatural provision. I believe it is a subversive text that revealed to the nation of Israel how God had a love for their enemies. More about that in a minute. So the second example is 2 Kings chapter 5. Now we've moved on from Elijah and we're now with Elisha, his successor, who heals a Gentile man named Naaman of leprosy. But Naaman wasn't just any old Gentile. He was the general of the dreaded Syrian army, which was a oppressive Gentile nation to the nation of Israel. The story was so skillfully told in 2 Kings chapter 5 that the Jewish reader is seduced into rooting for this Syrian general to be healed. They can't help but to be happy when they read this story about how Elisha healed him. In both of these stories, Gentiles are made human. And, and there's a sympathetic aspect of these figures. Instead of thinking that Gentiles deserve to be punished by divine orchestrated famine or the reader, the reader here is 
encouraged to rejoice that this woman and her family are going to be fed through the course of the famine instead of this general getting leprosy and being punished for being the leader of an oppressive Gentile nation, they are finding themselves feeling a sense of, we need this man to be healed. They're getting excited that Naaman's story and the way Elisha heals this man. There is a rejoicing in the kindness of God towards one of their mortal enemies. I believe these two stories have a powerful, subversive teaching in the Old Testament that is meant to shine brightly through the many places of darkness where it looked like vengeance was at the heart of God. So what really is an enemy? Let me just give you what I feel like is just a brief example for you and I, or a brief definition, not really an example, a brief definition, because we will be talking about that more. I believe, according to this widow and this general, an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. These two characters, Naaman and Zephyrath, I think meant a lot to Jesus. And let me make my case for why I believe this is true. In his gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus had been baptized by John in the Jordan and completed a 40-day prayer and fasting in the wilderness and has returned to Galilee to begin his ministry. And so after teaching in and around the Galilee in these villages throughout that area, Jesus finally returned to Nazareth and it's on a Sabbath in his hometown. So on that Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and was invited to read from the scriptures. And I want to ask us, what did he read? He actually read Isaiah 61 verses one and two. So Luke four, open up your Bibles here or turn your app on and go to the text or you can look on the screen. Luke chapter four, 17 through 20, listen to this. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. So for you and I, it's like turning the pages in the Bible, like looking for them, it would have been like rolling the scroll so that they could get to the writing because there there weren't chapters and verses in this. It was just the text. And so he's rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. So he gets to what we would refer to as Isaiah 61. So he finds that. And then he began to to read. Listen to this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to the blind to set the oppressed free, to reclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And then it says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. So did you catch what happened here in this reading? Did you see what Jesus did? Jesus stopped mid-sentence and rolled up the scroll. In the announcing that God's jubilee of liberation, of amnesty, of pardon, of of emancipation, of property being restored, was all of that was arriving in what he was doing. Jesus omitted any reference to God exacting vengeance on Israel's enemies. In case you think that this is an oversight or just 
something where Jesus, where, where, where Luke was getting writer's cramp. And so he just decided to write less and it was an intentional stopping point for Jesus that it was just something in the way Luke recorded it. Consider what happens next in verse 23. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physicians heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have heard that you did in Capernaum. Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And I assure you that there may, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. Talking about the nation of Israel but to a widow in Zephyrath in the, um, in the region of Sidon. And there many in Israel with lep- and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the general, the Syrian. So Jesus is announcing the year of the Lord's favor, but he is not emphasizing, but he is, sorry, He is emphasizing now that it is for Jew and Gentile. He has omitted that God is going to be acting revenge on anybody. So what does the crowd do with this information? How do they respond to Jesus rolling up the scroll and editing the prophet Isaiah? As soon as they realized he was closing the book on vengeance and altering what Isaiah was saying, the crowd turned viciously against Jesus. Look at verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. When they heard what? That Jesus was going to be declaring a year of Jubilee for everyone. Nobody was going to be exempt. Everyone was going to be restored. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. You know what this passage reveals to me about us? It's amazing how angry people get when you and I take away their right to take revenge. When you and I feel that we do not have the right to take revenge. We get crazy mad until we are captivated by the radical mercy of a loving God that is extended to all. You and I are always going to go through the Bible and look for text, look for what I would refer to as ammunition to justify us acting with vengeance or revenge or in some way hateful towards other people. The word was made flesh. And this prevents you and I from going anywhere in the Bible to find text that would allow us to seek revenge. If you and I cling to vengeance, you and I might have the Bible, but we will lose Jesus. If you and I cling to vengeance, we lose Jesus. So let me go back to where I started. I started at the Mount of Transfiguration. We've kind of gone a ways back around, but I want to come back around to this. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, Peter, James, and John. Close proximity, Mount of Transfiguration. 
One, Peter, James, and John is representing this newly formed society that we call the church. And the other were the law and the prophets. So the transfiguration, in my opinion, and what I believe are many other trusted theologians' opinion, the transfiguration is where the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, hand the project of redemption and restoration over to Jesus. The transfiguration is where the old witness, the Old Testament, yields to the new witness, the New Testament. But how many times in the Bible do we say, but Peter, but Peter, but Peter put his foot in his mouth, but Peter reached for a sword, but Peter didn't understand, Peter got rebuked by Jesus, but Peter. So Peter is watching the transfiguration of Jesus, the conversation between Moses and Elijah, and what does Peter say? Peter's first impulse is to build three memorial tabernacles on Tabor. This would honor each of them as equals. And if we go to Mark chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, look at what happens. So Peter has just said, let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And then in In Mark's writing, chapter 9, verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Moses and Elijah were gone. Jesus remained. Did you catch that? Peter's statement about building three tabernacles wasn't answered by Jesus. It was answered by the Father in heaven. And he adamantly told Peter, James, and John, which was going to be the foundation of the early church, this is my son in whom I love. You need to listen to him. And Moses and Elijah disappeared. So Jesus had a way of using the Old Testament to teach that God was a God who loved both Jew and Gentile, that he wanted Jubilee declared for all of his creation. And as I shared last week, Jesus settles all disputes about is God angry? Does God kill? Does God show um, a lack of restraint? Or does he withhold mercy from some people? And I just want to say, if you and I can't find it in Jesus Christ, then we can't find it at all. Jesus settles all disputes. Jesus is the full image of God. Jesus is how God has always been from the creation of the world until this day and then every day until Christ returns. Jesus is who God has always been. And only by looking at Jesus can can we go into the Old Testament and not get lost in broken thinking and in error. And so next week, as Aida leads us into the Canaan, and we look at things that were said to Moses and Joshua and even Caleb, and we begin to see what Israel was doing in Canaan, I want you and I to hold fast to the fact that it is Jesus that is the true revelation of who God is, and we do not need to believe anything in error. I desire for myself as a pastor and a teacher and for you as the people that I'm responsible to shepherd and care for 
to be better stewards of God's will and God's ways in our generation because people are watching us. The choices that we make, our spouses, our children, our neighbors, they're watching, they're listening, and they know that we believe in Jesus. What image of God are we portraying to them? Is it the image found in Jesus Christ? Or is it the image found in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures where people were using the name of God to be hateful, genocidal, abusive? Let's imitate Jesus Christ so that we can look like our Father in heaven. We want to invite you to respond to the word of God that we just received. We know that he is speaking and working in our hearts. Do you struggle with the desire to take revenge? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Do you hear God's voice saying to you, this is my son, listen to him? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you about Jesus Christ? Do you need to trust in Jesus Christ today? Jesus is what God looks like. Peter, James, and John were asked to build the church on the belief that Jesus was the word of God. We are also asked to build the church. Ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you now and help you let go of anything that is keeping you from seeing God's love and joining into that work of building the church. Let's respond to the Holy Spirit, acknowledge his work in us, and celebrate that we are lavishly loved by our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ.